Luke 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone all around them. And they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be with you for, will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on those and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing which has happened that the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray again together. Almighty God, as we approach your holy word this morning, Lord, as we think about an event that we are very familiar with. Lord, an event that, that in some cases we're probably so familiar with it and so familiar with the stories surrounding it that, that we have, have missed some of the, the important details because of added details. We pray, Lord, that as we think about the incarnation of Christ, about just who it was who came into the world, we pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, to, to see these things afresh, to see these things with the eyes of faith. And help us, Lord, to respond to these things in faith and obedience and worship. We ask this all in the majestic name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Amen. Well, today is our daughter Vivian's first birthday. And I remember the, this time so well, and we're Jane and I were talking about this morning, she was just beginning at, at this time one year ago today to be having some contractions. And we realized that this was probably the day. And I remember so well how we rejoiced to see our newborn daughter for the first time. And just a couple of weeks ago, 
Sarah was born to Luke and Bree. And Luke and Sarah are rejoicing. As I mentioned last week, the church is rejoicing with them. And we have a lot of kids being born in this church. We've had to do a, a, a renovation in the nursery to expand the nursery to be able to fit the kids. It's such a blessing. But as much as we rejoice over the birth of children, especially our own children, that rejoicing doesn't compare to this rejoicing. The rejoicing that we have over the births of our own children doesn't compare to the rejoicing that we have over the birth of the incarnate Christ when he came into the world. Now, this is the birth that we read about in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. We, we refer to birth as a miracle, but, but the birth of a child according to natural means is not truly a miracle in the, the, the true sense of the word miracle. At least not compared to this birth. We are blessed by the birth of our children, but that blessing, as great as it is, cannot be compared with the blessing that this child brings. In this passage, Luke moves from the story of John's birth to the parallel account of Jesus' birth. Jesus' birth is described in simple and plain terms that reflect the humble life and ministry of the incarnate Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and the Savior of the world. All of this is presented here, yet the full implications of these terms of, of Christ, Lord, and Savior are not fully developed here. They'll be developed throughout the book of the Gospel according to Luke and into Acts and on into the New Testament. As the story continues, we're going to see more and more the, the goodness of the good news. And as we witness the response of, of those who are the first to hear the good news, we must pause and consider our response to the good news. How do you respond to the good news of Jesus Christ? Now, in Luke's account, he reveals how the history of Rome is woven into redemption history. The humble Savior is introduced here as contrasted with the Roman ruler. An angelic army brings a declaration of peace. Simple folk are trusted as royal envoys. Christ was born in a stable, his royal bed a feeding trough. His only attendance, possibly a few farm animals. And though the focus here is initially on Israel, and the events that, that take place here within Israel, God's, ex, God's redemptive purpose is extending. It's extending the people from every tribe and tongue and nation. This birth, as humble as it first appears, marks the fulfillment of God's promise that had been made millennia earlier. This was the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. This birth would provide God's victory over man's greatest enemies, sin and death and the devil. But even more, this birth would provide God's peace with man's most powerful enemy, 
God himself. For human beings are born in rebellion against God because of the rebellion of Adam, our federal head. And our willful sin reveals the rebellion in our hearts that we have made ourselves the enemies of God. And so Luke tells the story of Christ's birth here in three main sections. In verses 1 to 6, the Christ is born. In verses 8 to 14, the angels rejoice. And in verses 15 to 20, the shepherds respond. So first of all, the Christ is born, verses 1 to 6. So Luke here does not begin in Bethlehem or even in Israel, but Notice in verse 1, he begins in Rome. This gospel account of the birth of Jesus does not begin with a Jew, but with a Roman. Caesar Augustus, born Gaius Octavius, he was the nephew and adopted son of Julius Caesar. He became the first emperor of Rome in 27 BC after defeating Antony and Cleopatra at the Battle of Actium and unifying the Roman Empire that he became known for his administrative abilities and for the, the peace that prevailed under his reign, ushering in the, the so-called Pax Romana, the Roman peace. It was a time of unprecedented peace and prosperity for the Roman Empire, which would expand all the way from Germania in the north to Spain in the west to Egypt in the south and Syria in the east. However, the peace was enforced by powerful Roman legions. It wasn't really peace. It was defeat and subjugation. There's an ancient inscription that refers to Caesar Augustus, listen to these words, as divine Augustus Caesar. Listen to this, son of a god, imperator of land and sea, the benefactor, and hear this, and savior of the whole world. This is a Roman Caesar. Augustus, whose name means exalted or honored, was honored more as a god than as a mere human. What a stark contrast with the one who this narrative is really about. Augustus sent a decree that all the world should be registered. He ordered a census. Now, the Romans would, would initiate a census either for conscription into military service or for the purposes of taxation. And since Jews were exempt from serving in the Roman military, for them this census was for taxes. Joel Green writes that the census too signals an unwelcome alien intrusion into the affairs of the Jewish people, a reminder of the allegiance required to them as a conquered people. They were under the occupation of the Roman Empire. They were the victims of the Pax Romana. Now the term here, all the world, speaks of the Roman Empire, but this census is going to truly have implications for the whole world. And Luke's is the only of the, one of the gospel accounts that actually mentions this census. He, Luke here wants to show the, the, the events of Jesus' life and ministry against the backdrop of its historical context. Now beyond the scriptures, there is no known record of this census. But as we know, the argument from silence is not convincing. 
There's actually no record of of any census from Caesar Augustus, yet in his own handwriting, he left a summary of information, including statistics on taxes that would have had to have come from censuses. And then we get more information in verse 2, that this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. This is the first census. There's, There's at least one more. Luke refers to another census in Acts 5.37, likely the one in A.D. 6, in which there was a failed revolt. So, so Luke here, in his testimony of the birth of Christ, spends more time talking about the census than it does about the actual birth. And as we've seen repeatedly, how Luke portrays individuals and their part in redemption history. We see the roles of Zechariah and Elizabeth and John and Mary in the story of Christ. Now we're seeing the role of a Roman Caesar, arguably the most powerful man on earth at the time. But the scriptures present him as unwittingly serving as an agent of God's sovereign plan. God is sovereign over history. History is his story. He is working all things for their appointed ends. Augustus was trying to build up his own kingdom, but he was in actual fact being used of God to build up God's kingdom. We need not fear what is taking place in world events. The king of kings is sovereign over earthly kings. It was this decree from Caesar Augustus from a human perspective, that brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. Verse 3, that all went to be registered, each to his own town. So Joseph traveled from the town of Nazareth in the region of Galilee to Bethlehem in Judea. Now the Romans didn't require that someone would travel to their hometown, but that was a a requirement according to to Jewish custom. So it's likely in accordance with this that, that the Romans allowed this to take place. So Joseph took his betrothed, the very pregnant Mary on the 145-kilometer journey from Nazareth, avoiding Samaria, to Bethlehem, his hometown. Well, who else has Bethlehem as their hometown? David. Bethlehem is also King David's hometown. It's his birthplace. And so Luke here emphasizes the Davidic link in the birth narrative. Remember, Joseph was introduced as being of the house of David in Luke 127. And in 132, Jesus is promised the throne of his father, David. Zechariah also refers to the Davidic link in in 169. And all of this highlights the fact that, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. From 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17. Jesus will rule forever. We saw him 132 and 33. He is the promised Messiah. He is David's greater son. The Messiah will come from Bethlehem. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Micah 5.2 that's quoted in Matthew 2.6. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are, are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From among you shall come forth for me one is who is to be ruler in Israel who's coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So Joseph must obey the emperor's decree, but the emperor must obey the decree of the sovereign God. 
Mary is referred to here as Joseph's betrothed, but that doesn't mean that they were still unmarried. It likely refers to the fact that their marriage was not consummated prior to Jesus' birth. And while they're in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. And Luke simply says that she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Again, his humble beginnings are highlighted. Jesus is her firstborn. She will have other children, children, but none like this one. Firstborn can refer to position, being first in position without any reverence, reference of others to follow, like in Psalm 89, 27, where David, who is the eighth son of Jesse, is referred to as the firstborn. Her baby is here wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger. These details are going to be repeated. Luke says twice that he was wrapped in swaddling cloths and three times that he was laid in a manger. Swaddling cloths were, <clears throat> were tight strips of cloth that were wrapped snugly around, around a child to keep them warm and feeling secure. A manger is a feeding trough for animals. Well, the fact that there is no room in the inn has led people to conclude that he was born in the stable. And while this may be true, or there's another early tradition that says he was born in a cave that really functioned as a stable, we don't really know the details. The church of the nativity in Bethlehem is built over a cave. It's possible that that was the actual place of the birth of our Savior. It also could have been a home in which animals were housed on the ground floor. There's been archaeological excavations that have shown that this was common in that area. We just don't know for sure, just like we don't know the date of Jesus' birth. I visited Manger Square on Christmas Eve in 2008, and it, it seems strange to me, but, but it was a, there was just a rock concert, and, and I, the only really religious thing that I saw was, was a, a few nuns walking by. Afterwards, I did meet a Palestinian Baptist who was also named John. He owned a, a store called the John the Baptist Gift Shop. I'm, I'm not joking about that, but I think he was actually a real Christian. But another thing that struck me about being there is, is how wintry it was. It, it was cold and wet. It was on the verge of snow. That's not how we often picture the, the birth of Jesus. Again, we don't know many details here, but all this points to Mary and Joseph being poor and outcast, which is a common theme in Luke. Consider again the contrast between Jesus Christ and Caesar Augustus. Augustus thought he was the ruler of the whole world. Christ is the ruler of all creation. Yet consider the humility of our Savior. J.C. Rao wrote that, that he, had he come to save mankind with royal majesty, surrounded by his father's angels, it would have been an act of undeserved mercy. But to become the very poorest of mankind, as lowly as the lowliest, this is a love that passes understanding. Let us never forget that through his, this humiliation, Jesus has brought for us a title to glory. And through his poverty, we've been made rich. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, for, though, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. 
Well, then we see the angels appear in verses 8 to 14. Now we shift to the first recipients of the birth announcement. Once again, God chooses to involve simple, lowly people. This story is played out not in the halls of power, not in the lives of the rich and respected, but out in the fields to shepherds. The shepherds were out in the fields in the outskirts of Bethlehem. And it's, again, it's doubtful that they would have done this in December because shepherds didn't stay overnight in the fields with their flocks in December. But on that night, the darkness was shattered by a bright light as the angel of the Lord appeared and the glory of God surrounded them. The shepherds were terrified. But the angel reassured them, saying, Fear not, for behold, I bring you news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Notice the elements that we've already seen in the earlier birth announcements that came to Zechariah and Mary, the, the appearance of the angel. A fearful response, reassurance, a birth announcement, and a sign. This repetition is intentional. We're, we're meant to see the pattern here. But as usual, you especially have to take note of the differences between this event and what we've seen before. First, notice the recipients of the message. Previously, it was one of the parents who had received the message from the angel. Well, now it's a group of people who weren't directly involved. Again, they were outsiders. Second, see the light of the glory of God that splits the darkness. This points to the fulfillment of what Zechariah had prophesied in, in chapter 1, verses 78 79, that the sunrise shall visit us from on high, for Christ will give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Again, this was the, the first fruits of that fulfillment. The bright presence of the Lord's Shekinah glory will appear later at important moments in Luke-Acts, at the transfiguration of Jesus, at the, the stoning of Stephen, at Paul's conversion. Well, living as we do after the earthly life and ministry of Christ, this light has been revealed to us. The light has shone on us and has delivered us from death. We have seen the full fulfillment of that, and we will see a greater fulfillment at Christ's return when his light shatters all darkness. Third, although the, although the angel is not mentioned by name this time, it's possibly Gabriel again because of his association with the glory of the Lord. But just think for a moment what it would have been like for those shepherds doing what they did in the darkness, just looking after their sheep. When all of a sudden, the, the blazing light appears and an angel appears and begins to speak to them. And like the fear that gripped Zechariah and Mary and the fear that, that gripped Peter and James and John at the transfiguration, they're understandably terrified. But the angel tells the shepherds to trade great fear for great joy. The great joy is for all the people, and it, become, and it comes because of the good news, because of the gospel. And all the people here in this context refers to Israel. The story starts with them. We'll see the inclusion of, of the Gentiles a little bit later on, but, and it's going to be a major focus, isn't it, in the book of Acts. 
But fourth, look at the beginning of verse 12. As the angel says to the shepherds, unto you is born this day. Unto you this day. And the you here is important. Shepherds knew a lot about yous. Waiting for that to sink in? Okay, thank you. The, the, this message, though, wasn't just for shepherds. This message wasn't just for shepherds. The, the, it would spread to others, but the first you is the shepherds. A, again, the previous birth announcements were to parents, but this one goes beyond family. It goes to, to outsiders. It's, it's to humble shepherds that the angels declare that the angel broadcasts the arrival of the Messiah. The, the baby was born to Mary and Joseph, but it's still born unto you. Now this should blow your mind. This child was born for them. This child was born for you. Brothers and sisters, we are brothers and sisters because this child has been born for us. Finally, and most importantly, unlike the other birth announcements, the baby's name is not communicated here. His name is not going to be communicated until the next section, down in verse 21, eight days later, at his circumcision. But though we're not given his, his direct name, we are told very clearly and powerfully who he is. Now Mary already knew the name, the angel had revealed it, but we're not told it, the shepherds are not told the name. But this half of the verse, the second half of verse 12, is really unparalleled in almost all of Scripture for its rich Christology, its presentation of who Christ is. These three terms, these three terms are not used together anywhere else in Scripture. Savior, Christ, and Lord. Savior, Christ, and Lord. Before even mentioning who he is, notice where this takes place. It takes place again in Bethlehem, the city of David. He, this is the fulfillment of messianic prophecy. He is the Savior. Now in the Old Testament, Savior usually refers to God's deliverance from sword and from pestilence. But here, it's developed much more, and much more later in the, in the New Testament, that he comes to save his people, not just from physical peril, but from spiritual peril. Again, this is a prominent theme in Luke. Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. In the Synoptic Gospels, only Luke refers to Jesus this way as the Savior. Here and in the Magnificat, Luke 1.47. In John's Gospel account, the Samaritan woman refers to Jesus in 142, 442 as the Savior of the world. And John refers to him this way in 1 John 4.14. So Jesus Christ is the Savior. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is God's anointed one. He is David's greater son. His coming was anticipated through the entire Old Testament, and it is finally here. He is finally here. He's also the Lord. Elizabeth refers to him as Lord in Luke 1.43. This term is, is used as a, a recognition of authority. 
But here, again, it means so much more. Elsewhere in the birth narrative, Lord refers to God as sovereign deity. We saw that in 116 and 46 and 68 and 76. But these two terms together, Christ the Lord, are used only one other time together in the Old Testament, in the Septuagint version of Lamentations, Lamentations 420. But this is going to become the, the key Christological term that Luke is going to use to describe Jesus, especially in, an, in Acts. But these two terms, Christ the Lord, are going to be used together again and again and again throughout the rest of the New Testament. So again, these three terms describe clearly who Jesus is. Like we've seen before, the angel says there will be a sign. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now, in a small town like Bethlehem, it's doubtful that any other babies were born that night. But even if there were, they probably would have been wrapped in swaddling cloths. That's what people did with babies. But now finding him, finding him lying in a, manger, in a manger, that would be unique. So the message being delivered, a multitude of angels suddenly appears, praising God, saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. First, the angels give God the, the greatest praise for the incarnation of Christ. And throughout his life and ministry, all of God's attributes will be gloriously demonstrated, not just in the life of Christ, but especially in the substitutionary death. Now, this multitude of angels is referred to as a host. Now, this word host usually refers to an army. But this army didn't come to declare war. This army came to declare peace. The angels are declaring peace between the holy God and sinful men. Earlier, Israel was in view, and now joy is extended to, to all people, to the Gentiles. Now, the King James translates this, um, peace, goodwill towards men, but I, I think the NASB is the closest. Peace among men with whom he is well pleased. This peace is offered freely to all, but it is not goodwill towards all men, but toward his elect, those God chooses. God made war on himself to purchase peace for his elect. Heaven rejoices and praises God for his work of salvation whereby God's people now have peace with him while, while almost all of humanity is oblivious to what has taken place. Only these few shepherds heard the message. Again, they've been told to trade great fear for great joy. And so we're left to wonder here for a moment, how will they respond how will you respond? Have you traded great fear for great joy at the Savior, Jesus Christ? Paul declares in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, that you can only say Jesus is Lord. That is, you can only submit to him as Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. If Jesus is not your Lord, Jesus is not your Savior. So how will the shepherds respond? Well, let's see the response in verses 15 to 20. Again, the shepherds respond. 
Here we see not just the shepherd's response, but, but various responses at the arrival of the Messiah. Again, think about what we've seen so far. We've seen, we've seen Zechariah's doubt turned into faith. We've seen Mary's humble faith. Again, this is going to be a common theme in Luke and Acts. There are various responses of people to the message of Jesus and of his coming. Well, now we see further responses, again, especially that of the shepherds. And notice, we're going to notice that at every point they respond with faithfulness. They hear, they believe, and they go to Jesus, and then they spread the word. So after the angels had departed to back to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing which has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They, they want to see the word that God through his shepherds had made, through his angels had made known to them. There, there is no question in their minds that the angels have faithfully declared God's word to them, the truth to them, that it was the Lord himself who had revealed it to them. They, they understood that the angels were faithful messengers. They believed the angels' report, and these shepherds respond with faith. But they don't respond in word only. They respond in action. They go. Verse 16, they went with haste. There's a sense of urgency here. Now, we don't know how long it took for the, the angels to, to find Mary and Joseph and the baby or, or how they found them, but they went and they found the baby in the manger. And again, we're told here this detail that has been, it's repeated. These shepherds, these privileged few, were the first human beings on earth, apart from Mary and Joseph, to witness the incarnate Christ. Again, this is the fulfillment of God's promise. Now, I wonder what, what words would have passed between Mary and Joseph and these shepherds, or how long they would have just sat there in, in awestruck silence. When they saw the baby in the manger, just as the angel had told them, they couldn't help but tell others. Again, they, they had this, this good news, this great and glorious news that they, they couldn't keep to themselves. So these shepherds testified as to what they have seen and heard, that the Savior, Christ the Lord, has been born. Again, this is the fulfillment. This is the fulfillment of 131 to 35 and Isaiah 7, 14, that the Virgin Mary has given birth. This is the fulfillment of Micah 5 too. It took place in Bethlehem. This is the fulfillment of redemption history from Genesis 3.15 and onwards that God has made peace with his people. This news is too good to keep bottled up. Again, at this point, most of the world was oblivious. The rest of the world was oblivious. And we still live in a day in which most of the world is oblivious. And it's our privilege and our responsibility to be able to go to others with this message, with this gospel. So human beings now take up the testimony that was first delivered by angels. Daryl Bach says, The shepherds reflect a vibrant faith where the sequence is God's word, faith, and then testimony. When God's word comes to pass, he says, testimony should follow. Brothers and sisters, have you had a personal account, a personal interaction, a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ? 
Well, if you are here as a brother or sister, you have. How can you keep silent about that? How can you refrain from telling others about the incarnate Christ, about the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, intercession, ascension, intercession of Christ? You can't keep that to yourself. If you've met Christ, the shepherds are the first evangelists. Are you following in their footsteps? When was the last time you, you told someone the testimony of what God has done in sending his son to the earth? May this truth be so abundantly in our hearts that we can't help but have it pour out of our mouths. Well, then in verse 18, we see others now responding to the good news. People respond as people often do when they come face to face with God's word or God's works. They're surprised. They wonder. Now we've seen a lot of people wondering so far. The worshipers at the temple wondering at Zechariah's delay in 121. The visitors at John's circumcision wondering at Zechariah's naming of John, 163. The people wondering at John the Baptist, 166. Mary wondering at the witness of the shepherds in two night in in 219. Well, next week we're gonna see Jesus, we're gonna see Joseph and Mary wondering at Simeon's praise of Jesus. But here, there, there's no sense that this wonder leads to faith. Now, it's very likely that in some cases it did. But at this point, it's non-committal. It's just wonder. I wonder, do you wonder at the incarnation of Christ? Well, if it's just wondering, if it's not faith, if it's not acceptance and belief, then you're still on the outside looking in. Well, Mary's response in verse 19 is, is contrasted with that of the shepherds and that of the others. Unlike the shepherds who broadcast the news, Mary keeps it to herself. Now, this is not a criticism of Mary. Mary has been revealed to be faithful. Now, she's not going to stay silent, but here Mary's silence is contrasted with the testimony of the shepherds. Her silence amplifies the shepherds' voices. But even more, Mary's response also contrasts that of the crowds. Hers is not a, a passing wondering, but a deep and continued reflection. She, she seems to, to not have it all figured out. And we'll see her wondering again shortly about this. But nevertheless, she is presented as an example of a faithful response. But then in verse 20, the last word belongs to the shepherds. They're seen ret returning, glorifying and praising God for what they had seen and heard. All is as it has been told to them. This is again the fulfillment of promise. Their message is the same as that of the angels. And so they serve for examples of us, for us, faithfully proclaiming the message that they have heard and believed. As we think about these varied responses, the shepherds or the crowds or Mary, which response most accurately describes you? Are you one of those who hears the good news of the gospel and just to give it a moment's thought before it passes out of your consciousness? 
Or, or do you continue to ruminate on these things? Or do you proclaim it to all who will listen? May we all act in faith and faithfulness. So in this passage, the simple description of the birth of our Lord and Savior, when Mary had given birth to her son, she wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. And this became the sign for the shepherds, the sign that they believed and proclaimed. Well, we have another sign, don't we? In Luke 23, 53, where we see Jesus not wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in the manger, where we see Jesus wrapped in a burial shroud and laid in a tomb. And we know that three days later, he rose from the grave victorious over sin, victorious over death, victorious over hell, that he's ascended to the right hand of the Father where he continues to intercede for his people. Luther said that when I am told that God became man, I cannot follow the idea. Or so I can follow the idea, but I just do not understand what it means. For what man, if left to his natural promptings, if he were God, would humble himself to lie in the feed box of a donkey or to hang upon a cross? God laid upon Christ the iniquities of us all. As we'll hear next week from Simeon in, in 2, 34 and 35, where Simeon blessed Mary and Joseph and the baby and said to his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many may be revealed. The sword would pierce through Mary's heart at the death of her son. At that point, she did not fully understand what would happen three days later, what he had done and what he would do. Now she would understand. Just as we now understand 2,000 years after these events, but we rejoice in the fact of Romans 5, 6, that while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus would indeed crush the serpent's head, but he would have his heel bruised in the process. But praise God that defeat was not final defeat. And his victory is our victory. And we hope not just in the incarnation of Christ, but in the death of Christ, in the resurrection of Christ, in the ascension of Christ, and in the intercession of Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what a glorious gospel. What glorious good news you have given us through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, God the Son, who lived the holy, obedient life that we have never lived and died the death that we deserve to die. Lord Jesus, we are rejoicing over the fact not just that you were born but that you accomplished everything necessary for our salvation you gave up your life and you took your life up again for it's impossible for death to hold you
And Lord, we look forward to your return. Lord, to that day when you will come back and finish what you started. Lord, that you will, when you will rule over all things, when, when every enemy is finally and completely destroyed. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come. Amen.